0: Chapter 11 of Where No Fear Was A Book About Fear This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Tabler. Where No Fear Was A Book About Fear by Arthur Christopher Benson. Chapter 11 dr johnson there is one great and notable instance in our annals which ought once and for all to dispose of the idea that there is anything weak or unmanly in finding fear a constant temptation and that is the case of dr johnson dr johnson holds his supreme station as the figure par excellence of english life for a number of reasons his robustness his wit his reverence for established things his secret piety are all contributory causes but the chief of all causes is that the proportion in which these things were mixed is congenial to the british mind the englishman likes a man who is deeply serious without being in the least a prig a man who is tender-hearted without being sentimental he likes a rather combative nature and enjoys repartee more than he enjoys humour the englishman values good sense above all qualities by a sensible man he means a man with a clear judgment of right and wrong a man who is not taken in by pretenses nor gulled by rhetoric a man who can instinctively see what is important and what is unimportant but of course the chief external reason apart from the character of johnson himself for his supremacy of fame is that his memory is enshrined in an incomparable biography it shows the strange ineptness of Englishmen for literary and artistic criticism, their incapacity for judging a work of art on its own merits, their singular habit of allowing their disapprobation of a man's private character to depreciate his work, that an acknowledged critic like Macaulay could waste time in carefully considering whether Boswell was more fool or more knave, and triumphantly announce that he produced a good book by accident probably boswell did not realize how matchless a biographer he was though he was not disposed to belittle his own performances but his unbridled interest in the smallest details his power of hero worship his amazing style his perception his astonishing memory and the training he gave it his superb dramatic faculty which enabled him to arrange his other characters around the main figure and to subordinate them all to his central emphasis all these qualities are undeniable moreover he was himself the most perfect foil and contrast to johnson that could be imagined while he possessed in a unique degree the power of both stimulating and provoking his hero to animation and to wrath boswell may not have known what an artist he was but he is probably one of the best literary artists who has ever lived but the supreme quality of his great book is this that his interest in every trait of his hero large and small is so strong that he had none of that stiff propriety or chilly reserve which mars almost all english biographies he did not care a straw whether this characteristic or that would redound to johnson's credit he saw that johnson was a large-minded large-hearted man with an astonishing power of conversational expression and an extremely picturesque figure as well he perceived that he was big enough to be described in full and that the shadows of his temperament only brought out the finer features into prominence since the days of johnson there are but two englishmen whose lives we know in anything like the same detail ruskin and carlyle we know the life of ruskin mainly from his own power of impassioned autobiography and because he had the same sort of power of exhibiting both his charm and his weakness as boswell had in dealing with johnson but ruskin was not at all a typical englishman he had a very feminine side to his character and though he was saved from sentimentality by his extreme trenchancy and by his irritable temper yet his whole temperament is beautiful winning attractive rather than salient and picturesque He had the qualities of a poet quixotic ideal and an exuberant fancy but though his spell over those who understand him as an almost magical one his point of view is bound to be misunderstood by the ordinary man carlyle's case is a different one again there the evidence is mainly documentary we know more about the carlyle interior than we know of the history of any married pair since the world began there is little doubt that if carlyle could have had a boswell a biographer who could have rendered the effect of his splendid power of conversation we might have had a book which could have been put on the same level as the life of johnson because carlyle again was pre-eminently a figure a man made by nature to hold the enraptured attention of a circle but it would have been a much more difficult task to represent carlyle's talk than it was to represent johnson's because Carlyle was an inspired soliloquist, and supplied both objection and repartee out of his own mind. I think it probable that Carlyle was a typical Scotchman. He was more impassioned in his seriousness than Johnson, but he had a grimness which Johnson did not possess, and he had not Johnson's good-natured tolerance for foolish and well-meaning people carlyle himself had a good deal of boswell's own gift a power of minute and faithful observation and a memory which treasured and reproduced characteristic details if carlyle had ever had the time or the taste to admire any human being as boswell admired johnson he might have produced fully as great a book but carlyle had a prophetic impulse an instinct for inverting tubs and preaching from them a desire for telling the whole human race what to do and how to do it which johnson was too modest to claim there is but one other instance that i know in english literature of a man who had the boswellian gift to the full but who never had complete scope and that was hogg if hogg could have spent more of his life with shelley and had been allowed to complete his book we might i believe have had a monument of the same kind but in the case of boswell and johnson it is boswell's magnificent scorn of reticence which has done the trick like the spurt of acid of which browning speaks in one of his best similes the final stroke of genius which has established the life of johnson so securely in the hearts of english readers lies in the fact that boswell has given us something too compassionate as a rule the biographer cannot bear to evoke the smallest pity for his hero the absence of female relatives in the case of johnson was probably a part of his good fortune no biographer likes and seldom dares to torture the sensibilities of a great man's widow and daughters and the strength as well as the weakness of the feminine point of view is that women have a power not so much of not observing as of actually obliterating the weaknesses of those whom they love it is sentiment which ruins biographies the sentiment that cannot bear the truth boswell did not shrink from admitting the reader to a sight of johnson's hypochondria his melancholy fears his dreary miseries his dread of illness his terror of death johnson's horror of annihilation was insupportable he so reveled in life in the contact and company of other human beings that he once said that the idea of an infinity of torment was preferable to the thought of annihilation he wrote in his last illness to his old friend dr taylor oh my friend the approach of death is very dreadful i am afraid to think on that which i know i cannot avoid it is vain to look round and round for that help which cannot be had yet we hope and hope and fancy that he who has lived to-day may live to-morrow but let us learn to derive our hope only from god in the meantime let us be kind to one another i have no friend now living but you and mr hector that was the friend of my youth do not neglect sir yours affectionately Samuel johnson was ever the last fear put into such simple and poignant words as in the above letter it is like that other saying of johnson's when all sorts of good reasons had been given why men should wish to be released from their troubles by death after all it is a sad thing for a man to lie down and die there is no more that can be said and not the best reasons in the world for desiring to depart and have done with life can ever do away with that sadness dr johnson supplies the clearest proof if proof were needed that no robustness of temperament no genius of common sense no array of rationality no degree of courage can save a man from the assaults of fear and even of fear which the sufferer knows to be unreal some of the most severe and angry things which johnson ever said were said to boswell and others who persisted in discussing the question of death yet johnson had no rational doubt of immortality and believed with an almost childlike simplicity in the christian faith he was not afraid of pain or of the act of dying it was of the unknown conditions beyond the grave that he was afraid probably as a rule very robust people are so much occupied in living that they have little time to think of the future while men and women who hold to life by a frail tenure are not much concerned at quitting a scene which is phantasmal and full of pain but in johnson we have the two extremes brought together he was the most gregarious of men he loved company so well that he would follow his friends to the very threshold in the hope as he once told boswell that they might perhaps return when he was alone and undistracted his melancholy came back upon him like a cloud he tortured himself over the unprofitableness of his life over his failure to achieve official prominence he does not seem to have brooded over the favourite subject for englishmen to lose heart over namely his financial position it is a very significant fact in our english life that if at an inquest upon a suicide it can be established that a man has financial difficulties a verdict of temporary insanity is instantly conceded loss of property rather than loss of affection is the thing which the englishman thinks is likely to derange a man but johnson seems never to have been afraid of poverty nor to have ever troubled about fame He was very angry once when it was laughingly suggested to him that if he had gone to the bar he might have been lord chancellor and i have no doubt as i have said that one of his uncomfortable reflections was that he did not seem to himself to be in a position of influence and authority but apart from that it is obvious that johnson's broodings took the form of lamenting his own sinfulness and moral worthlessness what the faults which troubled him were it is hard to say he does not seem to have been repentant about the mortification he caused others by his witty bludgeoning. Indeed, he considered himself a polite man. But I believe from many slight indications that Johnson was distressed by the consciousness of sensual impulses, though he held them in severe restraint. His habit of ejaculatory prayer was, I think, directed against this tendency, the agitation with which he once said that corruption had entered into his heart by means of a dream seems to me a proof of this he took a tolerant view of the lapses of others and of course the standard of the age was lax in this respect but i have little doubt myself that here johnson found himself often confronted with a sensuous tendency which he thought degrading and which he constantly combated apart from this he was not afraid of illness in itself except as a prelude of mortality indeed i believe that he took a hypochondriac pleasure in observing his symptoms minutely and in dosing himself in all sorts of ways his mysterious preoccupations with dried orange peel had no doubt a medicinal end in view but when it came to suffering pain and even to enduring operations he had no tremors his one constant fear was the fear of death he kept it at arm's length he loved any social amusement that banished it but it is obvious in several of his talks when the subject was under discussion that the cloud descended upon him suddenly and made him miserable it was all summed up in this that life was to his taste that even when oppressed with gloom and depression he never desired to escape i have heard a great doctor say that he believed that human beings were very sharply divided in this respect that there were some people in whom any extremity of prolonged anguish bodily or mental never produced the smallest desire to quit life while there were others whose attachment to life was slight and that a very little pressure of care or calamity developed a suicidal impulse this is i suppose a question of vitality not necessarily of activity of mind and body but a deep instinctive desire to live the thought of deliberate suicide was wholly unintelligible to johnson death was his ultimate fear and however much he suffered from disease or depression his intention to live was always inalienable his fear then was one which no devoutness of faith no resolute tenacity of hope no array of reasons could ever touch it was simply the unknown that he feared life had not been an easy business for johnson he had known all the calamities of life and he was familiar with the worst calamity of all the causeless melancholy which makes life weary and distasteful without ever removing the certainty that it is in itself desirable we may see from all this that to attempt to seek a cure for fear in reason is foredoomed to failure because fear lies in a region that is behind all reason it exists in the depth of the spirit as in the fallen gloom of the glimmering sea-deeps, and can be touched by no activity of life and joy and sunlight on the surface where the speeding sail moves past windswept headlands, we must follow it into those depths if we are to deal with it at all, and it must be vanquished in the region where it is born, and where it skulks unseen. End of chapter 11